Please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. If you're using a Bible provided, you'll find this on page 942. 942. Romans chapter 5. I want to begin reading in verse 12, and we'll read down through the end of this chapter. So hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin was, indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of the free grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week we began to look at this passage by focusing specifically on verse 12. We today want to continue in our exposition through this portion of God's Word by looking at verses 13 and 14. Verse 12 begins a comparison. That is, the Apostle Paul starts to compare Adam, the first man, with Jesus Christ. In verse 12, he refers to Adam as the one man through whom sin came into the world. And then in verse 14, he names Adam, making sure that we understand specifically who he is talking about. And at the end of verse 14, you see what he says about Adam? He calls Adam a type of the one who was to come. And there he's referring to Jesus Christ. Well, Paul interrupts his flow of thinking in verse 12, and he'll finish it in verse 18, so that if you want to get the flow of Paul's thought overall, just read verse 12, then go to verse 18 and read them together and you'll see the main point that he's making. But before he concludes the point, he he makes a parenthetical kind of addition. He he wants to make sure we're not misunderstanding something that he is teaching in this parallel comparison. He does it in order to elaborate what he has just said in verse 12, that sin and death are universal and that everyone in Adam's race experiences both. 
Adam, the first man, was the head of the human race. He was our representative. When God created Adam, he didn't create him merely as an individual, a private person. But he created Adam and established him to be the covenantal head of the whole human race. Or what we said last week, the federal head. That word federal comes from the Latin word that means covenant. God made a covenant with Adam. And Adam, in that covenant, stood in behalf of the whole human race. The covenant that God made with Adam ran along these lines. If Adam obeyed God and stood firm in the righteousness in which God created him, then he and all of the people that he represented would live in righteousness forever. But if Adam disobeyed, then he, together with all the people that he represented as the covenant head, would be plunged into sin and condemnation and death. And sadly... As Genesis 3 records, that's precisely what happened. Adam sinned. He fell. And as we teach our children, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. We were constituted in Adam because he was constituted as the head of the whole human race. Because he was our representative, we sinned in him. This is exactly what Paul says In verse 12, look at it again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. Adam's sin resulted in the fall of the whole human race. Sin and death are now the universal experience for everyone who is born into this world. All the people whom he represented before God. We are implicated in his disobedience, his sin, his guilt, his condemnation, his death are now coming to us. We find his condemnation and guilt imputed to us, credited to us, because we are by nature related to him. We are a part of the human race that he represented This point, our union with Adam by virtue of his federal headship of the human race is so important to Paul's comparison between Adam and Christ in these verses that he interrupts his flow of thought in verse 12 in order to underscore an important dimension of it in verses 13 and 14. In these two verses, Paul highlights the union that all people have with Adam in sin and death by showing that sin And death reigned in all people even before the law of God was revealed through Moses on Mount Sinai. And as we saw last week in verse 12, sin and death came into the human race through Adam. And what we want to do this morning is look at verses 13 and 14 and see how Paul buttresses this point by showing that death reigned over all people even before the law was given. From the point of Adam's sin, death reigned. Sin entered the world at the moment of Adam's rebellion. Try to imagine what that must have been like. His wife had already sinned. 
But he was constituted the head of the race. And when she gave the fruit to Adam, as Genesis 3 says, he took the fruit and he brought the fruit to his mouth. And at the moment his teeth bit into the fruit, sin came into the human race. Death came into the human race. He was constituted a sinner and everyone in him was constituted a sinner. And we see the consequences of his sin immediately in his own family. As Don read earlier, Adam's son in Genesis 4 was, Cain was angry with his brother Abel. And ultimately that anger led him to murder his brother Abel. But before he murdered him, God came to Cain and he said, you do not do well. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin. He was being tempted by sin. He fell into sin, even though there had been no commandment verbalized or written. You shall not murder. Well, sin's crouching at the door for all of us. We come into the world as sinners and sin is always tempting us to go away from what God has told us is right and good and true. And that was the case. Even for those who lived before God's commandments were published on Mount Sinai. This is what Paul means when he says, before the law was given. Do you see that phrase? He further explains the time that he's talking about in verse 14. When he says, from Adam to Moses. His point is that death reigned over the whole human race from the point of Adam's original sin throughout all of human history, even in that time frame before God spoke the commandments. He says that death reigned in verse 13, even where there was no law published. Sin's not counted, he says in verse 13, where there is no law. Counted means to, be, to put down on a ledger, to write it down, and make a record of it. In verse 14, Paul says, where there is no law, there's no transgression. And we just need to admit up front, this is a difficult phrase to understand. And to try to grapple with exactly what Paul's getting at. And there have been lots of attempts that are not, I'm convinced, what Paul meant at all. Because what Paul is saying must be interpreted in the light of verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 15. I'm sorry, I just read that. The phrase, sin is not counted where there's no law. That's the difficult phrase. But it must be interpreted in light of chapter 4, verse 15. Where there is no law. There's no transgression. So Paul is saying, if there's no law, there's no sin. You can't have sin where you don't have a standard. Because sin is violation of the standard. But if there's no sin, then there's no death. How do we know this? Because the wages of sin is death. Death is the consequence of sin. And we know that death existed from the time of Adam's First sin, because we read, as Paul says it here, death reigned. It reigned, which means sin must have been present. You can't have death without sin. So one thing we have to be very clear on is what this verse or this phrase does not mean. 
When Paul says, where there's no law, there's no transgression, he does not mean that since the law had not been given on Mount Sinai, there was no sin. And so people weren't held accountable for their sin. Now, you can see this illustrated by simply reading through the book of Genesis and the first several chapters of Exodus. Because we will find very quickly, beginning in Genesis 6, how people continued to give themselves over to evil such that God sent a flood to judge the world in its sinfulness. Or you keep reading and you'll read about those two cities on the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, where God, having come to the point where He would no longer tolerate their wickedness, rained down fire and brimstone upon them. Why? For their sin. So what does Paul mean? Well, the point of that phrase seems to be that For those who lived before the law was given, their sin was not marked down as specific disobedience to published commandments. It was sin, but it wasn't sin that was counted as specific disobedience to published commandments. We operate like this ourselves. If you have a four-year-old son and he goes and snatches a toy from his two-year-old sibling, well, that's wrong. And at four years old, you know that he knows that that's wrong. But if you've told your son, do not take the toy from your little brother, and he looks at you, then goes to his little brother and pulls the toy away, will you mark that differently? It's sin, still sin, still culpable either way. But one, you take measure of the fact that he has been specifically instructed what to do, what not to do, and has violated it. Further evidence that this is Paul's meaning, I think, is found in verse 14. You look at that verse, he says, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Well, what was Adam's transgression like? It was in direct violation of what God had specifically said. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, you'll see God tells him he can eat of any of the trees, the fruit of the trees of anything in the garden, with one exception. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, you may not eat. And when Adam sinned, he sinned against a very clear, revealed commandment of God. Now Adam's children, Cain, Abel, and Seth, and all the generations after them, up to the time that God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai, they did not have published the commandments of God to refer to. Yes, God's law was written on their hearts. Paul makes that case in Romans 2. You remember when he talks about the Gentiles that didn't have access to the commandments that were written in stone by Moses that we call the Ten Commandments. They didn't have those commandments taught to them, but the law of God is written on the heart of every person. And that was true for all those who came after Adam before Sinai. But they had no specific commandments given to them. Nevertheless, they all died. They all died, which means what? They all sinned. When you hear the recurring refrain from Genesis 5 that was read earlier, did you notice with the odd exception, no matter how long they lived, no matter how many children they lived, they all had this one thing in common? They all died. They all died. Why? Because they were all in Adam who sinned and brought death 
into the human race. They were all sinners. Constituted that way. Not by breaking some specific commandment of God that He had spoken to them. But constituted that way because of their union with Adam. Their covenant head. We sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. Paul says in verse 12 that all sinned. And he means all sinned in Adam. Verse 19, he reiterates this by saying that in Adam we were made sinners by his act of disobedience. And as a result, we come into this world and we commit personal sins. But our commission of personal sins does not make us sinners. Rather, it's the result of us being sinners. Just like Adam's offspring. One day, it's going to be said of every one of us in this room. And he died. And she died. And that death will be an ongoing testimony of sin coming into the world through our father, Adam. And that will be the case of everyone until the Lord Jesus returns. And on that day, he will defeat death forever. On that day, the power of his resurrection from the dead will be put on display once and for all time so that death, the final enemy, will be conquered and cast away and there will be no more death. Well, Paul's very concerned that we clearly understand our relationship with Adam. God made him, Adam, to be the covenant head, to be the representative of the human race. His disobedience brought sin and death into the world. We sinned in him. And as a result, death reigns in the world today, even over those who do not voluntarily and overtly violate an expressed ordinance of God the way that Adam did. All people still die. And as I mentioned last week, this is made evident most abundantly, I think, in the death of infants. Why do infants die before they've done anything good or bad personally? Because they, like us, are united by nature in their covenant head, Adam. In other words, as a part of the human race, we get what Adam earned. As the first man, God made him our representative. We're related to him by nature. And the consequences of his disobedience reverberate throughout all generations. Brothers and sisters, this is the doctrine of original sin. When you hear theologians talk about original sin, they are not talking about the original disobedience of Adam. Rather, they're talking about the result of that original disobedience of Adam. When we speak of original sin, we're talking about Paul's meaning in this passage, Romans 5, 12 through 19. Everyone is born with original sin because everyone is by nature in Adam. 
which means that everyone by nature is made a sinner, a sinner by virtue of his disobedience against God. His sin, Adam's sin, is imputed to us because he represented us before God. So what that means is that we're all in the same boat. Every person you know has unity by being born into this world in Adam. That's our state by nature. This is so significant today. This is what's being lost today and all the tribalism that is going on. I look around this room, there's all kinds of ethnicities. There's all kinds of, of backgrounds that are different. And men and women and children. And people who come from different places in life. But you know what we all have in common? We were born in Adam. We were born in sin. We were constituted sinners in the Garden of Eden when our father Adam took the fruit that God told him he couldn't have. And he ate of it. You believe this. I'm not asking if you fully understand it. I'm asking if you believe it as it is revealed here in this text. It's vital that we believe this. It's vital that we try to submit our thinking to this because this is absolutely essential for us understanding the way that God saves. If we miss this point, we will miss the grace of God in salvation that has come to us in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul interrupts his thought in verse 12 and drills down on the universality of sin and death in verses 13 and 14. If you fail to believe this truth about your sinfulness, then you will not seek the way of salvation that is found in the grace that God has in Jesus Christ. Because until you understand the diagnosis and believe it, you'll never seek the cure You'll never seek a remedy. And that is just as true spiritually as it is medically. The diagnosis that Paul gives us here is that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. We sinned in him. We came under God's condemnation in him. And death now reigns over us because of our union in him. So we have no reason to look down our noses at anybody. We have no reason to think, oh, well, this is that kind of person and we're this kind of person. No, before God, we are all by nature children of wrath. We're all by nature under condemnation because of our sin and our father, Adam. Now, again, why is this important? It's important because Paul's building an argument in this section of Romans. He's making a vitally important point about how God accepts sinners, how he forgives sinners. How can people who are sinful, guilty, sentenced to death be forgiven, be justified, receive eternal life from God? Well, Paul, before giving the answer to that, wants to make sure we understand the foundation of that answer by emphasizing Adam and our relationship to him by nature so that he can teach us about Christ and our relationship to him by grace. In the last part of verse 14, he has this little phrase that if we're not careful, we can just kind of glide over. He says, Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Why is it important to emphasize the sin that we have in Adam, how that sin is credited to us. 
Because Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, a type is an Old Testament person or action that foreshadows a future antitype or fulfillment. It anticipates something that's going to come, which will explain it in fully. And Paul here is saying that Adam, in this sense, foreshadows Christ. Not because what he did foreshadows what Christ would do, as, for example, Jonah, who was also a type of Christ, who went three days in the belly of the great fish and then came back out and fulfilled his mission. Well, that's a very clear type of Jesus Christ who three days was in the grave and then came out victorious to fulfill his mission. But rather, Adam is a type of Christ for two main reasons. One, because God constituted both Adam and Christ to be the representative of a people. Adam had a people that he represented before God. Jesus Christ has a people that he represents before God. Secondly, because their personal actions implicate everyone they represent. Adam sinned. And all those he represented went into sin, condemnation, death with him. Jesus Christ did not sin. And because of that, there's salvation for us. Adam's sin resulted from his disobedience and that is imputed to all of those whom he represents so that all of those whom Adam represents experience the consequences of sin and death. In the same way, Jesus' righteousness results from his obedience. And that righteousness is imputed to all the people he represents, all who are in him. This is the great parallel. This is the theological point that Paul is making in this section of Romans 5, and he elaborates it on, in the rest of the verses following verse 14. But he makes the same point in 1 Corinthians 15 in a much more succinct way. So if you, you want to understand what Paul's saying here, you can just go to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, and there you have it summarized. It's the same theological point. There he writes in 1 Corinthians, For as by a man, he's referring to Adam, came death by a man, he's referring to Jesus, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. All who are in Adam experience death as a result of sin. All who are in Christ experience life as a result of his obedience. Paul will elaborate this as we continue working our way through this section of Romans. God made a covenant with Adam representing all humanity, called him to obey his commandments. Don't eat of this tree. Adam failed, and humanity fell with him into sin. God also made a covenant with Jesus, his son, to represent his people, all who will trust in him. And he called Jesus to obey his commandments. And Jesus succeeded. He resisted every temptation. He did everything that God required of him to do as a man. And then he voluntarily laid down his life on the cross in order to make atonement for the sins of his people. And as a result, he earned eternal salvation for all who are in him. How do you get in Adam? Just be born. That's the way you came in. 
All of you here either are or were in Adam. How do you get in Christ? By renouncing your sin. Renouncing your unity with the world of sinners. And humbling yourself and trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that by faith, He becomes your covenant head. Those are the only two alternatives. So right now, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, friend, God's brought you here today to consider the truth about yourself, the truth about the world. This is how He created the world. This is the way that He rules over humanity. And our plea to you, our desire for you, is that you will turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus and find in Jesus the salvation that you need that cannot be found anywhere else. This is the point Paul makes in this passage. God deals with all people on the basis of a covenant. That first covenant was dependent upon Adam and he failed. Sin, death, hell results from his disobedience. But God was not content to leave the human race in that miserable condition that resulted from Adam's failure. But rather, he had already made a prior covenant in eternity past between Father, Son, Spirit, whereby the Son volunteered to go into the world of fallen sinners and establish a new humanity by becoming one of us and doing everything that God required in order for righteousness to be fulfilled, the righteousness that God deserves to have from His image bearers that no one of us here can give to Him. And then earning that righteousness, Jesus willingly laid down His life on the cross to atone for the sins of His people in order to earn forgiveness for all who are in Him. And He did this so that anyone and everyone who would trust Jesus Christ as Lord, might be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, our salvation has been accomplished once and for all. There's nothing we can add to it. Nothing you need to do. Your righteousness is in Jesus Christ. It's on His life, death, and resurrection that you now live. This salvation comes to us through grace and only by grace. It is His work, not ours, that makes us right with God. If we see this, if we believe this, it will set us free to live well in this world. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our payment for sin. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our guarantee of everlasting life. We contribute nothing to our right standing before God. He justifies the ungodly and He does it on the basis of that which has already been accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we who know Christ, who trust Christ, we should live as free people. We should live without the fear and concerns about our relationship with God because we know He is God for us. He gave His Son to us. And we are now united to Him through faith. But I know that not everybody here is in Christ. I just want to speak to you a moment. Children, young people, friends, do you want your sins forgiven? 
Do you believe what the Bible says, what we've sung this morning, that God is holy? He can't accept unholiness in his presence. If you're honest, you know that you're not completely holy. You're sinful. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you're called to stand before God? What's going to be your plea? Oh, God, I did my best. God, I didn't know. What are you going to say? Here's what you can say. Jesus Christ lived for me, died for me. And I trust him as Lord. And he's mine. And for Christ's sake, accept me. Turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus now. He will save you. That's why he came into the world. To save sinners just like you and me. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to turn over a new leaf. You have to take God at his word. Believe the Bible. Turn from your sin. And embrace the Savior who came into the world to establish a new humanity that is completely acceptable to our God. May the Lord grant grace and strength for all of us to look to Christ, to trust in Him, to rest in Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your wonderful message of salvation. We thank You that You save sinners like us, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has already done. I ask that you would help us who are in Christ today to think about him, to remember him, to rest in what he has accomplished for us and to live freely in this world. And for those who came into the room today, strangers to you, bearing the burden of sin in union with their covenant head, Adam. Oh, God, would you not rescue them today? Would you not open their eyes to see the beauty that is in Christ, the life that is in him, the righteousness that they need that he has accomplished and turn them from sin, grant them faith to call Jesus Christ Lord and to live for him. Hear our prayers for Jesus sake. Amen.